All right, welcome back. Tell the band to go home. CJUM 101.5 UMFM at the University of Manitoba is where we originate. We are live here. Our pal Corn Raymond is here. I was uh, we were busy the other night, so I didn't I didn't catch it, but we were just catching up about the big Tom Waits birthday party. It sounds like this song is uh, kind of an important one. Let's let's hear it, and then we'll hear Corin uh, retell the story about uh, it and uh, whatever else. Corin Raymond is here. Reese is here. I'm here. I'm Jeff. Jeremy's over there. Thanks for being here. You're listening to Tell the Band to Go Home. There's a house on my block That's abandoned and cold The folks moved out of it a long time ago And they took all their things And they never came back It looks like it's haunted with the windows old Everyone calls it the house A house where nobody lives Once it held laughter Once it held dreams Did they throw it away? Did they know? Someone's heart breaks Or did someone do somebody wrong? Well, the pain is all cracked It was peeled off of the wood The papers were stacked on the porch where I stood Weeds had grown up just as high as the door. There were birds in the chimney and an old chest of drawers. Looks like no one ever come back to the house where nobody lives. Oh, it ain't the roof or the doors 
From uh, Mule Variations, there's the great Tom Waits with uh, House Where Nobody Lives. I, I never really would have would have thought of you as a Tom Waits guy, really. I don't know why, but that's ridiculous. Well, that's funny. that um, That's uh, because, I mean, I, I don't think there's any other uh, songwriter or sort of personality in popular music that's had a greater impact on, really? on me as Corn Raymond than what I do. Um and I mean, if you listen to songs like "Blue Mary Made Dress," yeah. or whatever, I mean, if you you get if you once you start hearing it, you'll hear it. Absolutely, you know. absolutely. <laughs> just but, listening to that song, I was like, "How did I miss this?" I mean, um, yeah, but like "Blue Mary," yeah. I mean, I think we, I don't know if we talked about that last time, but "Blue Mary Made Dress" was written after, uh, like, because "Orphans" came out November twenty second, two thousand six. Um, I know that because basically, from every album from. Uh, from uh, you know, Black Rider on, I uh, I was there like I was there at the store, yeah, like waiting for the door to be open, yeah, you know, for every record, like you know, I can remember, I could still picture the front of the record shop where I got like Bone Machine, you know, or Mule Variations I got the night before. Um, I I the guy I talked the guy into at the record shop and he had the box there he hadn't opened it. And it, the release date was the next day, and he he sold me one that night, and I got a bunch of our friends together. It was like seven or eight of us, you know, guys traveled across town. We all got together in my little apartment, my little room, and we listened to that album from start to finish. Um, and uh, you know, when when Orphans came out in two thousand six, it was like I think I, I something like seventy one tracks on that. I think sixty yeah, sixty like eight or seventy one tracks three discs and i ballers I, brawlers and bastards exactly so i got that and i took it home and i lay in the dark and i listened to all three discs um and you know just taking it all in and by that time you know it was it was the middle of the night and uh yeah i got up and went in the kitchen and pretty much wrote bloomer my dress like wrote 80 percent of it like Real. just right there um just from because i was just so full of uh I mean, the thing about Tom Waits is like, you know, I mean, it doesn't have this effect on everybody, but if you're a writer and you like Tom Waits, I don't think there's any question that Tom Waits makes you want to write, mm -hmm. which is really, I think, in my books, that's like the best compliment you can give a, a, a songwriter is that they make you want to write and they just, you just start thinking, you start having ideas. Um, and, uh, yeah, so yeah, Tom Waits has had a huge impact on me. I mean, I, I mean, I first heard Tom Waits when I was, um, when I was 15 years old, that's when I got into him. So it, it, he really just uh, caught me by surprise. I'd never really heard anything like it at that point. Although at the same time, he dovetailed with a lot of stuff that I grew up with. I mean, because, you know, I grew up on a lot of Broadway stuff and Hollywood songs. And, um, you know, those writers, especially those New York, uh, 
Broadway writers, you know, had a huge impact on Tom Waits. And, and I mean, he's, I mean, you know, what did Frank Lesser say? Frank Lesser, the guy who wrote Guys and Dolls and Slow Boat to China. What are you doing New Year's Eve? Baby, it's cold outside. I remember he was at an interview one time talking about, you know, what he does. And he just said, I'm in the romance business. <laughs> and I think it's pretty safe to say that Tom Waits is in the romance business. But um, but that song, House Where Nobody Lives. Yeah, man, I haven't heard that in a while either. Mm. Um, but uh, I did play that song. Um, I haven't listened to his uh, the studio cut of it in a while, but I played that song at, at Times Change uh, last Thursday as part of a really fun uh, Tom Waits birthday party night. Um, but that song blows my mind, man. It's mm. just like... Mm-hmm. It's that southern, like it's that southern thing that's got, but it's also that that blend, that that hybrid, that beautiful mix of uh, of country and soul, which is like, you know, one of my favorite things when country and soul music come together. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you could hear Otis Redding singing that mm-hmm. that tune. They could have had the Memphis horns on that, you know. Uh, <laughs> like it's, uh, um, ah, Tom Waits. He's really got the uh, the vernacular of America. You know, he's really mm-hmm. got the. He's one of those writers like Bob Dylan or or whoever you want to name that really gets under the skin of like American music, mm. you know? Yeah, absolutely. It's uh, he it, it, it's such a I don't know. I think a lot of people get confused by Tom Waits because because he's so diverse. He's got some stuff that's pretty inac- inaccessible, and then he's got some stuff that sounds a little bit more like pop music, and then he's got like. He's all over the place. Well, I think it's his presentation that confuses people yeah. because he's so theatrical and he, you know, he's got about 12 different voices he uses. <laughs> That's right. um, like I remember when Neil Young was inducting him into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, you know, Neil Young had this great little intro speech about weights. And, uh, you know, at one point the thing he said, you know, I'm looking at him and I'm seeing like four different guys, you know, like, yeah. like he's like, yeah. you know, I'm watching this guy play and it's like, <laughs> says, it's like how many, of, guy how many of them are there? You know what I mean? And like, <laughs> you could I, say the same thing about Neil. Yeah, you could. Except, I mean, I mean, I think Tom Waits takes it further though. Yeah, um, absolutely. And, and, and also he pushes those, he's one of those people who is like, first of all, he was one of the, one of the only artists who kind of wrote himself into a dark corner in which he could have been caricaturing himself forever. Yeah, that's right. He could have died of caricature yeah. and cliche yeah. at the end of the 70s. But he married Kathleen Brennan, and together um, they were able to um, kind of write him out of there and kind of transform his whole persona, his whole presentation. And, uh, you know, when he first took the first tracks he took over to, uh, was he on Asylum before that? Can't remember. What was the label he was on when before he moved to Island? Because when he took the tracks over, you know, with his new album tracks for Surface Trombones, and he played them like three tracks, <laughs> the executives there. And, uh, yeah, I mean, he was fired on the spot. Yeah. And, uh, you know, and so he was shopping for another label. And uh, But he did it, you know, he did yeah. it. Um, and, uh, man, so I understand. I mean, I felt the same about Neil Young. I know this is, um, yeah. I know this is sacrilegious to say on the radio in Winnipeg, but, uh, you know, for a long time, I just couldn't stand Neil Young's voice. Yeah, yeah. And, and and it's that thing, whether you're listening to the Smiths or Bob Dylan or Joni Mitchell or whoever it is that has a very, very distinct vocal, you know, vocal cords and style, it's like it can turn you right off. Yeah. And, and, I, and I certainly have had lots of friends who couldn't stand listening to Tom Waits, but when they hear his songs performed by other people, they're like, man. Yeah. You know, and, and you know, that's the way it is. And, and for me, though, for me, I was I was one of the lucky ones as far as Tom Waits is concerned because I just ate it up. I just I just loved everything he did, 
and I and I um, and maybe it was partly that musical theater thing too, because because you know Tom Waits is also very funny. Yeah. You know he's funny yeah. even when he's he, that's what I love about him. He's got that old time showbiz thing like Charlie Chaplin, where he's able to make you laugh and cry at the same time. And even when he's being like, even when he's singing something that's really um, quite serious, he's also making you laugh. Even right. in that performance of House Where Nobody Lives, like just his vocal choices mm-hmm. and just the way that he kind of becomes this old, this old sort of Southern soul, you know, you can almost picture this old guy on a porch and he's, and, he, and it, there's just something about his theatricality in the performance that it makes me laugh, you know? Mm-hmm. So... Anyway, I, I hear you about, um, you know, people who, who aren't into Tom Waits. Um, I'm glad I'm not one of them. My dad used to say, um, you know, I'm glad I don't like broccoli because if I liked it, I'd eat it and I hate it. You know, and I think I feel that way about listening to Tom Waits. Um, you know, I wouldn't want to be someone who didn't listen to Tom Waits. Um, you know, but uh, that song you played also had a big... Um, it had a big, Im- it, it, like, it, I mean, talk about the way Tom Waits has impacted me. Uh, I mean, you know, for, for 10 years, I was singing with a duo called The Undesirables, mm-hmm. with my buddy Sean Cotton. And I was, uh, you know, wrote a lot of songs with him, um, wrote over 100 songs with him, mostly supplying the lyrics, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wrote some music too, but I wasn't, I wasn't playing any instruments. Um, and so, you know, when I came time to try to write my own songs, um, I mean, it was terrifying. I, I, that's why I avoided it for so long. <laughs> but when I was 29 years old, I really, I really was scared that I just wasn't going to be able to do it. Yeah. You know, and I didn't want to find that out. But when I was 29 years old, I, I, I kind of bit the bullet and I had this idea for a song called Record Lonesome Night. Mm-hmm. And I thought, um, that's a great title. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like uh, sort of an emotional weather report. Mm-hmm. Which is a very kind of Waitsian thing to even... Uh, Think about, think about, you know, and so I was like, yeah, record loans. And I, I worked on that for a few years. I was chipping away. I was coming up with eight rhymes and, you know, coming up with uh, with bits and turns of phrase. And I kind of had a couple ideas, but I just couldn't figure out how to put it in a song. I couldn't figure out what kind of song it was or how it was going to feel or how it was going to sort of vibe, how it was going to sound. And um, then when Mule Variations came out and I heard that song, um, house where nobody lives and it um yeah it 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 it, it just it unlocked the door the last door mm. it showed me how the song needed to be absolutely so yeah yeah uh before we get too far into this uh last time you were here you said you were you were done doing shows in winnipeg uh what happened how uh, what happened well it was at the last thursday we did because we did five thursdays i was playing I did all five Thursdays in November with Jason Nowicki on guitar and Joanna Miller on drums and Ryan Menard on upright bass. And we had a really fun time. We did five, five Thursdays, seven to 9 PM, no cover. I passed the hat and, uh, they were so much fun. And then the last one was so much fun that, um, three of the staff there that night after when we were, uh, you know, chatting afterwards, um, they were like, we need, you got to do another one. Like we, they were like, what do you? And they looked at the calendar and it was blank on um, Wednesday the thirteenth, this yeah. upcoming Wednesday. So they were like, you know what? That's a crazy week. That's our only day off. But you know, 
Because they're they're literally open every other day that week, which they're not. Yeah. That's very very unusual. So. It is. It's an unusual week. It's so a cra- you think it's a crazy that those week. people would want the day off? Exactly. I w- it was very. I felt very. Uh, it really was heartwarming because they were like they said they were like you know. We could we could decide right now. We don't even need to talk to John. You know, we could like <laughs> it's like because I mean, if we're willing to come We've got in, the keys. <laughs> if we're willing to come in, we can make it happen. Yeah. So they just said, you know, we will all come back and work that night if you're if you can do it. So I, you know, I, I just called up the uh, the other members of the band. Everybody was into it, and so um, yeah, it was really sweet. So we're we're doing one final one final you know Thursday, except it's a Wednesday. We're doing mm-hmm. this Wednesday the thirteenth. But, uh, yeah. Now, conventional wisdom, especially in Winnipeg, would say that, uh, aren't you worried that nobody's going to show up because everybody's seen the show already? They already knew about the other ones. They made their plans. What what keeps people coming back to this thing? Because, I, I don't know, I, I have my doubts about Winnipeg audiences sometimes, but I was very impressed. I went to, I think I went to the first one and, did I go to, no, I went to the second last one on your birthday. And the crowds were great. Both times, I was, I was, I was. My heart was warmed by Winnipeg's oh, response to that because sweet. I've seen Winnipeg not respond too many times. So I, I'm pleased to see that. What what is it that peop, keeps people coming back? Like what? It's just a feeling. Yeah. Um. I mean, I, I, I mean, I'm saying that. I mean, I don't. I know probably as much as you, but uh, you know, uh, there's a feeling. There's just a good feeling. Um, for whatever reason, I'm, I mean, I'm certainly bringing a lot of that good feeling, but it just seems to, just seems to kind of, um, the songs and the players and the, the joy that everybody seems to take in playing on these songs. And, um, I love playing them. I certainly feel that, um, you know, I don't know. Uh, I don't know what it is, but, um, I feel very lucky because, um, Certainly, when I play the Cameron House in Toronto, it's the same. It's um, can generally depend on it being um, full, yeah. and uh, and you know often it's the same people who've literally yeah, yeah, seen me yeah. play there like hundreds of times. There's got to be people come to the Cameron who've seen me like 250 times. You know what I mean? <laughs> so it's amazing. like you know. So to ask five shows of Winnipeg, yeah, it doesn't seem too too crazy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, we pretty much had about the same numbers every Thursday. That's great. Um, and you know, I wasn't worried, you know, there was a little nervousness, you know, I mean, I, again, like, you know, John Scholes is taking care of us all and he's got to, uh, he's got to make sure it works out for everyone. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he sort of expressed a a similar kind of, you know, can we do it? Can we do a last one? Are people going to come? And honestly, I, I don't have any doubts. You know, it might be a little, might be a little smaller crowd than, uh, you know, the Thursdays in November, but I don't know. It's hard to say, right? Like, and there'll be, there'll be people who are, who are there. I mean, Whitehorse is playing uh, two, two shows the uh, Monday and Tuesday. I mean, there'll be people who go see Babe, Big Dave tonight and then go see Whitehorse once or twice and then go see Corn after that. Like, that's the thing. You got people who are out, the hardcores you know, are in it for they're sure. out there. And I mean, it's also going to be fun on Thursday because I think Jackson Haldane's going to sing some songs with me. Oh and, yeah, um, yeah, because you teased you know, us with that on your on your birthday. I think. He well, was and he was come. sick. Yeah, yeah, he he got sick. Everyone got sick. Um, I mean, Chris Carmichael was um, mm. was scheduled to join us. He got sick. Right. He got COVID. Right. Jackson got sick. Jay got sick twice. Uh, was still able to play the gigs, but um, you know, everyone was getting sick. But um, I think I think Jackson's in good shape this week, and uh, I think he's going to be there. And Carrie Latimer actually threatened. Um, 
to uh, to jump up on stage. We're going to set up a mic for her because she she's well. Gonna, I mean, she's been there. She's going to sing some harmonies. I was there. She was so. there. So like, what's it going to take? Do I have to lift her up there? Well, myself? I think I, I think it's already done. I mean, okay, I think good. she she said uh, at the Tom Waits night. She said, um, "Hey, I'd like to sing some harmonies with you on Wednesday." And we said, we'll "Set you up a mic, and you know, anytime you're inspired." So I. I, I don't know. I have a good feeling about it, um, and I'm really happy to do one more because, um, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I've got nothing else on, and, uh, <laughs> you know, I am here for, like, another week or something in town, so, uh, yeah, I'm I'm excited to do it. Well, I'm excited to have you, and th- those special guests are enough to uh, get me. I, I also love the fact it's an early show. I mean, you you, you generally start right around 7, which is good, and uh, and you set your own admission price. If you're if you're hard up, you don't have to throw anything in the bucket. And if you're flush, then you then you maybe give a little more love. You know, it's true. Um, and uh, I love that model. I love that it's actually working out. And uh, what what more could you ask from a night of entertainment than that? That sounds pretty good to me. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty easy going, and uh, I like that too. Uh, do you want to give us a taste of what we might hear or, or something? Well, maybe, you know, it would be even better is something we might not hear. Well, I think it might also be fun because, um, um, you know, it was a while ago that uh, House Where Nobody Lives was played mm, there. Mm. But um, I, I think it would be kind of cool for anyone who has been tuned in for this conversation because um, I was t- saying how that song, House Where Nobody Lives, it really showed me. And this is a thing that, um, you know, some songwriters – Maybe summers who haven't been writing for long or, uh, you know, they think that that's kind of like maybe they're not supposed to do this. You know, you're not supposed to build your song on on someone on a different song. Uh, but for instance, like the song Rivertown. Uh, I don't know if you know the song Rivertown, mm-hmm, but mm-hmm. Hayes Carl mm-hmm. um, wrote with Guy Clark. But, you know, The Law and the Lonesome was modeled on Rivertown. Right. And um, I used Rivertown as a kind of model. I was I was covering Rivertown. And then I wrote my own river town, and I actually prefer my river town to their river town. Yeah. But the long and lonesome wouldn't exist without river town, and um, yeah, chords and lyrics yeah. were influenced there, you know. Yeah. And that's something that happened. So I don't know. Maybe people have forgotten house where nobody lives because that was in the ancient past. Um, but um, <laughs> I certainly hadn't heard it in a while. So let here I, I wouldn't mind, and it's also the first song I ever wrote on my own. So um, you know, it's uh, it's it's got it's got um, some curiosity value, I think. Um, see, now I want to just go. There's a house on my block, you know. <laughs> it's all abandoned and cold. So you're gonna see how I, you're gonna see what I stole here, and how it helped me. She said it sure is a lonesome old night. He said. Yeah, ain't they all? But she said tonight is more lonesome and sad than any night I can recall. She said it just might be a record lonesome night. Since the Hollywood burned down, you know, the road out of town is as dark as a burnout fuse. Your car's twisted, it's rusted, the radio's busted. All it picks up is the news. 
you forecasted right. Yeah, because it's a record lonesome night. And oh, all the times I told her he couldn't hold her, I might have saved my breath. If she goes crying on his cold shoulder, she'll only catch her death. Ain't it hard when the one you can't have is the one you need most? Night after night, like a moth to a light. You're hanging around like a ghost And don't you burn like some faded taillight On a record lonesome night And oh, all the times I told her He couldn't hold her I might have saved my breath she goes crying on his cold shoulder She'll only catch her death Hey, it ain't the first time It's felt like the worst time That, that you ever had She said it must be the devil let you look good when you feel so bad You gotta burn twice as bright On a record lonesome night It's a record lonesome night It's a record Beautiful. That's a, that's a great song. Thanks, man. You must have felt good about uh, finishing that one all by yourself. That, that sets you up for, I mean, I don't know. I always assume that everybody's first song that they kind of finish by themselves is going to be garbage. But if you, <laughs> if you if you start out strong, it's... Uh, <laughs> well, actually, in a way, it's it's kind of, it's 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 scarier to start out strong. I mean, I, oh, and also, it, uh, I, yeah. should, I should say, in, uh, in defense of first songs, um, it took me four years um, from having the idea to figuring it out and getting it finished. And like I say, it was probably near the end of that four years, you know, that I heard that Tom Waits track, House Where Nobody Lives. And that really was like, it really showed me like, this is how this song needs to feel. This is the kind of song it is. Yeah. You know, it's sort of got, it's like a country soul kind of tune and this is the feel, this is the vibe. And I, I stole his chords. I mean, this is a classic Tom Waits, you know, a classic Tom Waits. Is to, he's got the one, and he goes right to the five. Then he goes to the four, and then the lift with the, then the lift, you know, to, to back to the one and the four. And it's that, it's that kind of circular kind of, uh, that thing that pulls you in. And a lot of his chord progressions do that. Yeah. And that, so that was a real clue for me. I was like, okay, 
okay, I get it now. I get how this song is going to feel, and I get how it's going to kind of uh, be structured. And um, and even his, like, you know, once, and, you know, once it held laughter, once it held dreams, did they throw it away? <laughs> did they know what it means? You know, I, I was kind of, okay, so Record Loves Nice is going to be like that, too. It's got it's to have this one other part, you know, that ended up being that, um, you know, uh, whatever it is, you know, all the time, the times I told her he couldn't hold her, I might have saved my breath. You know, that was sort of like, I really modeled it on that song. So I had help. Um, I had good help. And also I had written about a hundred songs with Sean Cotton before right, that. Yeah. So I did have some experience. I, but I really felt lost when I was trying to write that song. I didn't know how to do it on my own. Because normally Sean would just go, oh, well, it should go like this now. And mm -hmm. I, he would lead the way and it, he would like, I would kind of be the idea guy and he would kind of catch them and put them where they needed to be. Right. So that was a new thing for me. But I got to say, Jeff, responding to what you said about coming strong out of the gate, um, it was really scary because I wrote that song and everybody liked it so much. Like Ron Sexsmith said it was a perfect song, you know, and um, <laughs> like I was, um, you know, and I had like before long, there were like two or three people were covering it. Like Claire Jenkins, who I really admired a lot, was singing and playing songs in Toronto at that time. She started covering it and doing a beautiful version of it. And, and I, I felt and also I got quite depressed after that um, in my life. And I really started to fear because like it was about a year and a half went by and all I had was this one song mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. everybody loved it. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I don't think I'm ever going to be able to follow yeah. that up. Yeah. Like, I don't think I'm going to be able to write another one. And I was so afraid to even finish another one because I thought, well, it's not going to be, no one's going to like it as much as they like this one. You know, so it was actually kind of scary. And I was very, I was actually almost more grateful to, to finish a second and a third song because it, at that point I started to break the ice and started to feel like, oh, okay, you know, that isn't my only song and there are other songs to work on and I just got to focus on what's next. But it, it, it was kind of daunting, actually, to yeah. um, to have a song that people admired so much. So oh. if uh, if Tom Waits unlocked that first one, what helped you get to the second one? Like what what eventually broke that thing where you felt kind of scared or or? I think I I mean really it was just it was just really a matter of putting in hours. You know, yeah. like I basically would uh, you know I would dedicate myself to working on a song. For, I'd put in two hours a day yeah. and you know often nothing would come of it but I would be working on something I'd have an idea whatever the next idea was um, and the songs that I would have finished after Record Loans and I honestly don't know what the second song was I finished because I kind of probably I probably finished a little batch of them mm -hmm. I probably worked on a little batch of songs for a while after that and then kind of you know had a you know three or four songs that kind of came together um you know, in conjunction with each other. And I I feel like you could give it April, give it May would have been one of those. Something to lean on would have been one of those. Um, songs like, um, yeah, One Fine Day. Um, and, and some of those were, were ideas that had been kicking around for a while, um, you know, that were just unfinished. And I just um, took it upon myself to finish them. But, uh, yeah, it, it really was as simple as just... just clocking the hours you know if, yeah. I, if if i was willing to put in two hours every day for a month i was going to end up with a few new songs 
I, uh, one of the, one of the things I love most about you is your passion. I'm a passionate guy too. I know these, like I hear all these songs and they mean something to me and I want to share them with people. But a lot of the musicians I meet, they're, they're kind of like, uh, I feel like they're magicians in a way. They don't, they don't like showing you how, how the trick is done or they don't like showing you who inspired sometimes. Sometimes musicians are kind of like, they have to act like their thing is, you is know, completely original <laughs> and unique, right? But totally. you're a guy who's like, no, 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 here, let me show you how this is done. How? Uh, well, like, the thing is, it's a bit of a double bluff, and it's a bit of an uh, because I can tell you everything I just told you. <laughs> that doesn't mean it's going to be any easier to write record Lonesome Night. Yeah, you know what I mean. So it's like I have no, like I have no, like if I can say something that helps another writer, like find an, a, a doorway. Like if I can say something about my process that helps another writer go, oh, you know what? Yeah, you know what? I'm going to like, I'm going to use that song as a blueprint or I'm going to do whatever. I don't know what. But if it helps them to just find another door, because I mean, every there's a thousand doors to every song. And I mean, we're all looking for them all the time, Mm -hmm. you know, and and often sometimes you just can't even find them. You can't even find the doors. You just it's like. It's like, you know, when a bunch of people are standing out front of a place because the door's locked, but you have to go up and try it yourself because, like, yeah, yeah. who knows? Maybe it'll be open when you try it. You know, sometimes it feels like that, and you're just like, how how will it get in? And when are they going to come open up this place? Uh, and other times, you know, you might have several doorways. But the thing is, I think a lot of people writing songs don't realize um, how many doors there are and that there's different there's different ways of approaching. You know, if you can't get in that door, go around the back. Mm-hmm. Climb up the pipe. Get on mm-hmm. the roof. You know, like you just do whatever you got to do. And also, I think the thing is I work on my songs. Some people don't. Some people are able to write amazing songs without working too hard. I don't know that I totally believe that, but I mean, they say they do. Um, And I mean, I'm not one of those people. I got I work at them. Mm -hmm. Um, I was thinking about Shane McGowan, too. Like what an incredible writer. I remember him saying that, too. You know, he was saying, like, I work at them. You know, it's they don't come easily. And I feel that way. And so knowing that about myself and my process, I mean, what are you going to take from me but inspiration? Because, I mean, if you can write if you can write my songs like in an hour, I, I want to see it happen, you know? <laughs> I want to know how you do that. Yeah. So, like, if you could teach me that, that would be amazing. But you know what? Honestly, I don't think that, is go- I don't think that exists for yeah. me. Yeah. So what have I got to lose by sharing about my process? I mean, it's like telling someone how to build a house. Yeah. It's like you could talk about carpentry doesn't mean it's gonna you know doesn't mean they're gonna they're gonna do it in less hours you know does it come any easier with with experience or do you have more confidence as it goes or do you still have to put in the same struggle that you did when you were writing that one you know it's a weird thing i mean because honestly every time i wonder how the heck i'm gonna finish the song like and every time and also as the thing is as you get more experienced and as you get like as you've done more writing um, I think you, I think you, you, you're able to complicate things more and challenge yourself more. Right. So like, you know, when I wrote like, well, a song like Morning Glories is a heck of a lot more complicated than the song Record Lonesome Night. Mm-hmm. There's a lot more going on and, and the writing is a lot kind of, I don't want to use the word fancier, but it's just, um, it's a lot more sophisticated a song. Uh, and I mean, I certainly couldn't have written Morning Glories you know, when I was 29 years old, mm-hmm. but it took me four years to finish morning glories. Mm. And it was kind of a similar thing. Whereas like I struggled with it. I was stuck on it. I, I tried this, I tried that. I'd have these little breakthroughs. I was carrying it around. It was like, and, uh, that was another song where I actually 
had a guy that kind of said one thing that kind of unlocked the whole thing for me. But, you know, I'm working on songs now and they're not coming any easier. I think the only advantage to having written is that you kind of trust more in the unknown of it. You trust more in the frustration. You trust in the discomfort of it. And you kind of go, well, I've been working on this song for a year, and I feel like I'm only halfway there, and it doesn't feel like I'm going to figure this out tonight. But you know what? This has happened before, and I kept going, mm -hmm. and I ended up with a good song. So I'm just, you know, I think when I was working on Record Loans Tonight, it was scary because I thought I was supposed to be able to write a song. Right. I thought I was supposed to be one of those magic people who just could, like, write a song. Mm. And I think I had some confusion around that. Uh, and didn't know, even though even though I'd done a lot of writing for the Undesirables and, you know, had worked pretty hard on my lyrics, I, uh, you know, there was still a sense that, like, I wasn't a real songwriter because it was taking me so long to finish the song. Mm. And, you know, you hear Towns Van Zandt talk about how he, like, he went in and how, uh, you know, how he wrote, uh, you know, w Waiting Round to Die, you know, like he tells it like uh, even Poncho and Left, you know, he talks about how he wrote that song in like in a day or whatever, in an hour, and then, you know. But but his his first wife, you know, she had a very different story about him working on those songs and and said that he he set up this closet in the house where you know he would he would do his writing. He set up his little writing room in this walk-in closet, and you know she thought she was going to use it for her shoes or whatever, and no, it was like. He, that became his writing room and you know i think it was a bit of a shock for his uh his wife there when they first got married because all he did was go in there and close the door <laughs> and uh you know she barely saw him and he was in there for like three weeks and mm -hmm. came out with waiting around to, to die mm -hmm. and then later he would talk about it like he wrote it in an hour right and she said she remembers like, and she thought he was working on a song for her. Yeah. <laughs> she thought, well, we just got married. He's in there working on a song. He's going to like write me a love song. And then he came out and it was like waiting around to die was the song that he'd finished. Yeah. But I mean, everybody loves to like, and it's easy after a song gets written, you forget, you forget too. You think you start to think a little more highly of yourself, like because everybody likes the song and you can play it at parties and it. It's like people are singing your song and you start to think, oh, like, yeah, I'm special, you yeah, know? Yeah. And you kind of forget, like, that actually it was a big pain in the ass mm -hmm. and it took you a long, you know, there was a frustrating process that you went through to get there. But then when it's done, it's just, you know, it's fun. You carry it around, you sing it out, you see, you get, you get social, you know? And because for a while, that's the thing, there is a while there where it's just you and the puzzle. It's very private. It's just you and this unfinished thing that you're working on. Once it's released into the world, it belongs to all kinds of people. And people have all kinds of ideas about it. And, they, uh, and of course, it's done. So it's like impressive because it's done. Yeah. But uh, you know what? For me, when I go back to work on a song, like I'm working on a few right now, and when I go back to work on them, it seems like I'm faced with the same thing every time. Like, how can I... What is this? How do I do this? Right. Do your songs ever evolve? Like when you look back at early songs, are there parts that bug you that you that you'll change now? Or you must have writers from time to time go, you know that song of yours. You know what? You know what you should have done. Do you ever have that happen? And do you, like, do you ever change them? Or once they're done, they're they're set in stone. Well, I don't want to say they're set in stone because I mean I do like to believe that there's still some malleability in uh, 
you know, and that things can evolve. But because of the kind of writer I am, because I take so much time uh, and because it's so difficult for me to let it go, um, you know, and I really work on them to the point where I feel also I got to be able to sing them. Right. Mm -hmm. And so like if I was writing the songs for someone else, maybe it'd be different. But because I have to sing it, I got to believe every word because because I'm singing this for people, strangers, fans, people, friends, people who are looking. I'm looking at them. They're, they're looking at me singing this song to them. And if I got something in that song I don't believe, it makes it very difficult for me to do my job. Right. Um, and so, you know, Leonard Cohen said, you know, every time he finishes a song, as soon as he's finished the song, he looks for the lie because mm -hmm. he knows there's still a lie in there and he wants to root out that lie, you know, and uh, get at the truth. And I think if you have that kind of rigor, you know, like, and Leonard Cohen's another guy because he didn't have the golden voice that he joked about, you know, in, uh, in Tower of Song, because he was not a songbird, um, you know, he had to work extra hard on the words because mm -hmm. he had to be able to sing them. And he would sound ridiculous singing something that wasn't great, you know. Uh, great singers can sing anything. Like, you know, you get someone who's a songbird, whether it's male or female singer, they can sing all kinds of stuff and it sounds fantastic doesn't really matter, you know, um, whereas I was always in a situation where I wasn't the greatest singer. Uh, I'm, I, I certainly wasn't a, wasn't a very good singer to begin with. And also I was doing this acoustically, which is another thing. You don't have the volume. You don't have these things to hide behind. You don't have the light show and the noise, the distance, the height. You know, I'm right down there um, with the people I'm singing to and I... I got to be able to put every line across. So to answer your question in a very roundabout way here, doesn't happen to me very much mm -hmm. that, that there is something I regret. Usually once they're built, once they come off the line, for me, you can drive them like till after I'm dead. You know, I really do feel that they're, they're built to last. And uh, it, it, it does happen sometimes. Okay, okay, I'll tell you this. Sometimes you get so excited about because it feels so good to finish a song. Everybody wants to finish a song. Everybody yeah. wants to be able to come in and say, hey, Jeff, you know, I wrote this today. Yeah, yeah. I wrote this in the parking lot before I came up here. Check <laughs> it out, man. Everybody wants to do that. Yeah. Everybody wants to feel like the special one who, who just wrote the song. It just came to them. You know, it's such a great feeling to finish a song. Um, and it makes you happy for days and days and days. In fact, I got a song I finished a couple of years ago now called Listening. And I still feel like it's my new song, you know, and it still makes me happy. It's like, hey, this is my newest song. I'm still getting juice out of it. So, you know, it's an easy trap to fall into that you, you might finish a song before it's done just so that you can have that rush. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of writers do that. They just want to finish the song, so they finish it. Some of them don't think about it after that. They're yeah. just happy to have a song. I've done that a few times. I've even played songs on festival stages thinking they were done. I took a song into the studio when I was working on Dirty Mansions with Scott Nolan and company there in St. James. I took a song called Rec Room. Uh, yeah, I was, it, I was thinking about that one. Into actually. the studio. Yeah. And I played it for them. And first of all, the way I was playing it was not the way it ended up being, um, you know, not the, not, it was not the song yet. It was not where it needed to be. It was not the animal it needed to be. So I played that song for like, I think Joanna Miller was there. Jana Wickey was there. Scott Nolan was there. 
and Jamie Sitar was there, who was the engineer, wonderful, wonderful man, a great he engineer. Is, yeah. So we play that. I play that song for them. I finish playing that song, just blankness. You know, they're just all looking at me. And then Jana Wiki breaks the the quiet, and he just says, "Did I just hear the first bad Corn Raymond song?" <laughs> Like he just said that right out loud, you know, and, and, and the thing is, I knew that it wasn't right, but I didn't know why. And I didn't know what it was missing. And I had kind of written a, a last verse that um, I, I knew it wasn't where it needed to be. Um, but again, I got so excited about finishing the song and people seemed to buy it when I played it for people. There was a bunch of, you know, audiences seemed to accept it and like it and people were complimenting it. So I kind of, I let them fool me for a bit, you know, even though in my heart and in my brain, I was not happy with that song. So when, uh, when Jay said that, and then Scott Nolan made a few suggestions and I actually, um, you know, I rewrote the whole back end of that song. And, um, also the entire feel was changed. Actually, Scott was uh, amazing. Cause he said, what if you played it about like at a third of the tempo? Like, what if you played it like mm. this? And he sort of suggested a tempo I played I played the song again for the same people in the same room at that tempo, sang it in a, a very different way. And all of a sudden, the lyrics, like all of a sudden they could hear what was there and uh, it came alive. Um, so in that sense, you know, there are definitely times where, uh, you know, you, you, you think you've finished a song and then you go out there and uh, it gets really uncomfortable singing it and you don't believe it but you don't know why. Mm -hmm. And eventually you realize that unfortunately you got to go back to the desk and, um, and you got to finish it. And I'll tell you, man, it's excruciating for me when I think of the times I played those songs on stages and I look back and I go, man, that wasn't done, Corin. So, you know, I think only in that sense, once, once now that, you know, Rec Room got finished and, uh, you know, I think, uh, it is done now, but, um, that's the only way uh, for me uh, that I'll go back and change things, I think. See, that's amazing to me for a couple of reasons. First of all, uh, that song, like if I'm making my personal Corn Raymond greatest hits, that's on there. Absolutely. That's one of my favorites of yours out of the whole catalog for sure. I, I love and adore that song. Um, but I also know that you're a very sensitive guy. And I know that somebody telling you that that song wasn't good, to me, I, I feel that. I feel like... I want to shut down when I hear somebody mm. say something like that no. about a song. It wasn't like that, though. Um, I, I appreciate that. And, of course, you know, it is a sensitive, fragile business um, showing people uh, art you've made and songs you've written. But in this case, I knew he was right. And, I mean, yeah. I knew I knew it wasn't there. I just it's coming from a friend that, that you know and love and trust. Yeah, so and be... also, like, I knew that it wasn't there. And I didn't know why, and I didn't know what the how to fix it. I didn't know... But I'll tell you this. I'll tell you this. I was. I was. Um, so why play it for them though? Well, because because I hadn't. I hadn't. I mean, when I say I knew it, I knew it inside. I knew it, but I ha I hadn't admitted it yet. Yeah. Like I hadn't fully admitted. Okay. I mean, often, often we're in relationships where you know <laughs> it's not working, but we don't. You have to get to a certain point. Your job isn't working. You get to a certain point where you just admit it for real, and, yeah. and then all of a sudden. It's a different game, right? Yeah, Once yeah. you say it out loud to yourself and you go, you know what? I'm an alcoholic or whatever it is. 
I wasn't admitting it. I was like, I was still hanging on to this this little fantasy that I had this song and that it was it was a good song and that it was gonna work and you know. So uh, anyway, I um, I was still I was still doing that and um, but I'll tell you this, my former partner, no no, the other one, girlfriend. I was. Um, I, I was with a woman for, for, for four years, and she was one of the best editors I've ever, uh, I've ever known. She was absolutely faultless. She was always right. And she was like the best, the best soundboard for me, yes. for my work that I've ever had in the sense that her antenna, her antenna were so sharp that it was like when I played Requiem for her, she nailed it right off the hop. But I didn't even listen to her, mm-hmm. even though I mm-hmm. knew she was right, mm-hmm. even though I felt it in my body that she was right. She said right off the hop, she said, I don't like this song. I know other people are going to like it. They're going to tell you it's a good song. But I'm going to tell you right now, it's, it's, not, it's not the good song that it can be. And I'll tell you right now why. Because that whole last verse is filler. And she said, you know what? You need to rewrite that last verse. You need to bring your father back into it because this song is about your father. And, you know, she said, there's a whole last verse, an ending to this song that it needs that you haven't even you don't you don't have it yet, and and she said that very clearly, you know, and uh, and I still was like going around playing it, still thinking, oh, I got a new song, I got a new song, check it out, and so you know when Jana Wiki said, did I just hear the first Bad Corn Raymond song? What he was really saying was, I don't get it, like you just. Like I'm used to when Corin sings me a song, I'm used to receiving it because it's built to be received and you're singing it to me and I, usually I'm like, wow, you know, I get it. Like I'm receiving that. This was a song that was just confusing, you know, and they didn't know. Jane Awiki wasn't, he wasn't like Laura. He wasn't going to come out and tell me exactly what was missing. Mm-hmm. But he knew that something wasn't right. Scott Nolan, bless his soul. I mean, he he knew what, he knew at least what what needed to happen musically to unlock the song. And, um, and, and so, you know, a little bit of teamwork there. Um, but to be, you know, I was prepared for that conversation at that point because I was not totally sold on the song. I just hadn't. Also, the thing is, here's the other thing. You finish a song and people are, people are telling you it's a good song and you play it on stage and you're getting away with it. You don't want to go back and have to start over and like yeah. figure out like start from zero and like like write a whole other thing that you don't even know what it is exactly. Like that's just such a pain in the ass and it's just it's just not fun work, you know, for me. Yeah. So like I was way more willing to just coast on it and see if I could get away with it. And in the end I couldn't. And 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 that's the thing when it comes time to sing the song on a microphone and when it comes time to sing it for an audience when it comes time to lay it down and that's the other thing when you go in the studio that's a different kind of commitment right because right. you could play it at, like I could play a song at times and people go home and yeah. that's it they might remember something of that song but but when you record the song all of a sudden if there is a lie as Leonard Cohen said there always is you're gonna find it hmm. you know. And, and sometimes that means there's extra work to do. Yeah. You, uh, you don't happen to have that song. I'm talking about that oh. song, Requiem. Like, if you have it, I wouldn't mind hearing that recording. Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, if you got it, because, um, you know, and the song, just for, for anyone who is listening out there, I mean, um, the song Requiem is, is, is about a, a guitar that my father bought when he was 18 years old 
that he learned to do some figure picking on it because he was a product of uh, you know the folk the folk scene in the in the sixties, and um, it was the Kingston Trio, mm-hmm. just the same way that the Karate Kid sold a lot of uh, Karate Class uh, you know subscriptions. Uh, people signed their kids up for karate all over the place. Um, you know the Kingston Trio did the same thing for acoustic guitars, and a lot of people were buying acoustic guitars because of uh, you know Pete Seeger or because of uh, because of, uh, I mean, Pete Seeger was playing banjo, but you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Um, and so my father bought this guitar, which eventually just became an ornament. It was neglected like mm-hmm. a lot of instruments, it just hung on a wall. And this song is really about the way, uh, you know, I discovered that song when I was 19 years old, and that guitar, rather. And, uh, you know, I have my father to thank. And that's that's what this song is. Sure, let's play it. This is Corin Raymond. He's playing Wednesday, Times Change, 7 o'clock. Pass the hat, name your own price, and uh, here's one of my favorites. Nineteen ninety. Sure knew how to hate myself. I went back to school and I still never got my grade 12. Still don't have it. Cool of the basement book dust was school for me. Meet that poster for 20,000 leagues under the sea. But the one show Robert Mitchum lighting a cigarette. Yeah, the Yakuza. And still, I still haven't seen that yet. 100 years ago, they were called samurai. That's what it said. Not sure that's true, but it sure as hell always caught my eye. Between those posters, something I never really seen before. It was always there. It was a cheap guitar hanging by a string from the rec room door. Decorative artifacts from your Churchill days. How come you never even told me there were songs you used to play? Songs like Hang Down Your Head, Tom Dooley, The Theme to Peter Gunn. A few chords were enough for anyone. When you caught the Kingston Trio and all their crew cut collegiate brio. You picked it up in 1961. And there was cobweb dust on the tuning pegs and those old nylon strings. And who the hell knows when the last time was that you tried to tune that thing. But a buddy in a band, he taught my hand how to make a D. You can bet that D chord led me straight to my first G. Now I ain't the only guy whose life got changed on a couch downstairs. <laughs> no, man. <laughs> but that first three chord song was the cure to all my cares. 
freaking out nights howling at the moon, telling the world. Yeah. And then everybody knew I was in love with a Jersey girl. And just like hang down your head, Tom Dooley, the theme to Peter Gunn. A few chords were enough to get it done. Yeah, when you caught the Kingston Trio and all of their crew cut collegiate brio, you picked it up in 1961 in a Brandon music store. You were still a kid. You hung it on a string, but you kept that thing, and I'm glad you did. I ain't the only kid who was forced to sit at a piano stool. <laughs> Those Leela Fletcher course books, man, they were worse than school. I got my third and final teacher fired because he used curse words. And what's that piano now but a box of songless birds? But I got my guitar with me everywhere I go. You know, I hung up your old harmony, living room wall, just for show. I make a living off this Gibson. It sees me through. I got a rec room education. Dad, that's down to you. Started with hang down your head, Tom Dooley, fiend to Peter Gunn. A few chords, still enough for anyone. When you cop the Kingston Trio and all their crew cut collegiate brio, you picked it up in 1961. In a brand in music store, you were still a kid. You hung it on a string, but you kept that thing, and I'm glad you did. Mm -hmm. Oh, so good. So uh, I don't know. One of one of the biggest uh, compliments for me, or w one of the things that impresses me the most. How, how many times did you have to record that song or do takes of that song? Do you know? Well, I mean, it was it was a little. Um, well, we got the we got the bed. We got what we call the bed track, which is yeah. um, you know once we got the feel of the song. I came in the next day once Scott Nolan established the tempo and the feel, and it was going to be this sort of uh, smoldering tempo. You know, I came in and, and that was fun to do, you know, with Joanna on drums and like, um, you know, um, I was playing guitar and uh, um, I think Scott might have even been playing a little guitar or a little organ or something. But we uh, we just got that bed track that um, with, um, you know, Julian Bradford on bass. And um, so once we had that, then we started messing around with like how I was going to sing it. And when I first started singing, I was singing everything at first. Mm -hmm. Like, 
at first I was singing everything. So it was like, uh, you know, I wasn't doing, I wasn't talking like in the song. I was singing every line. And we did that for a while. We were like doing takes and it, it something was not feeling right, you know. And it's one of those things. You often don't know <laughs> what doesn't feel right or what does feel right until you, you're doing it. And it was Scott Nolan was like, he came in and he was a little, I think he was a little nervous to, to suggest this because it's, it was kind of a bit of a, a bit of a leap. And it was just a little, uh, you know, he came in and said, what if, like, what if you did the verses? Like, what if you spoke the lines? Like you were just talking on the phone. Like, let's say you're on the phone with your dad and you're just saying these things, you know, 1990, should know how to hate myself. You know, mm -hmm. like you're just talking mm -hmm. on the phone. And it took a little while for me to even kind of like, cause I had to kind of readjust. Cause again, as we were talking about earlier, I had these ideas of what this song was going to be. And it, it and it started out as like a song that was a bit of a, like it was going to be a rocker, you know? It was like, mm -hmm. 1990, I sure knew I'd hate myself. You know, I went back to school, still never got my grade 12. You know, it was like it had a whole different feel. Really? And so like it was, you know, Scott Nolan was the one who was like, let's slow this down. And then not only let's slow it down, but like, what if you just talked? You know, so it was it was like so there was a kind of a, um, you know, um, there was an, a, a kind of an adaptation period there where we sort of were moving into a different territory and taking a totally different approach mm -hmm. to the material. And, and, and I had to catch up with that, too, you know, because at first I might, you know, I was still kind of singing and he'd come in and say, oh, look, look, you know. Like, I'm like, what if you like, just try not to sing at all. Like, what if you just, just talk, like, just say it. I was like, you know, and then I got you, then I got used to doing that. And, and then we kind of had to like, we had to sort of go through, you know, a number of takes. We had to, we, we, we spent like a whole day. We spent a whole day with me just trying different approaches and seeing what felt right and getting the, getting, getting in the pocket with it. So it took a while, you know, um, but once we had, once we had a, a bunch of performances, you know, we 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 were able to work with it, and you know, once once I got the feel, and once I started doing, once we all started to agree that it was feeling right, yeah. you know, it didn't take it didn't take that long, you know, but it was the getting there. Yeah, see that that's that to me is the magic of uh, of what you you and I mean you and I mean musicians do is uh, that song to me sounds like it's happening. Every time I listen to it, it sounds like it was the first time you did it. It sounds very natural. It sounds very um, not rehearsed. It just it just sounds like something magical is happening. And a great producer and and great musicians and a great song when they all come together to me, it's it feels like magic. Like it feels like uh, some kind of spontaneous lightning in a bottle is and happening. I, mean, I, th I think that's the place where where. It's singing and acting maybe overlap. I'm certainly not an actor. Um, I have an enormous respect for actors, um, and I have a lot of friends who are actors. But the thing that I think those things have, they have in common is, I mean, when actors are doing take, and sometimes they might be required to do take after take of the same scene, the same words, mm -hmm. and they gotta find, you gotta kind of figure out how to make it the first time every time. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, I remember going back to Tom Waits, I remember him, him talking about that, that aspect of acting that spontaneity and he said it was like trying to catch a bullet in your teeth and it's like uh it's difficult you know and you've got to be very comfortable and you got to kind of um you got to feel you got to feel safe and you got to be supported you know i was very supported by by scott and jamie and the musicians 
um, and everybody was into it. And, you know, I had it in me to, to deliver that performance. And I think that was what Scott, that was one of Scott's intentions when we first decided we were going to make a record together. He, he said to me early on, I really want to bring out the storyteller in you. I want to kind of bring out a different aspect of you mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. I haven't heard that much on your records where, you know, I want you to be telling stories. And I think that song was a perfect example of a kind of performance that I think Scott Nolan was secretly hoping to get out of me. But it, it presented itself by surprise. You know, we didn't expect that song to be that song in the end. But it, uh, you're right, though. I mean, it's tough and it's frustrating when you because you do, you know, when you're doing that kind of work, there are times when you feel like, uh, oh, man, that wasn't it. Like, I'm not I'm not there. I'm not I'm not in the center, you know, I, I, and, it, and again, it's like like I said about the door, the doors to, to writing. It's the same with performance. It's like there's a, there's a lot of doorways and there's mm -hmm. a lot of things you, you can bring to it to keep it spontaneous. And sometimes you feel you've run out of options. You've run out of. Uh, you know, you run out of magic amulets mm -hmm. and other times like something random could happen that just suddenly plugs you back in and it's all fresh again. And you're able to suddenly deliver a take that's uh, utterly spontaneous. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you're just it's you're just hoping for those and you just keep you just keep trying yeah. to, to get it. I love it. I got I got to try to squeeze one more song out of that guitar if you if you if you're able before we uh, run out of time here. Um, hmm, what could we do here? We're listening to Corin Raymond. He's playing Wednesday. Times change. No advance tickets. You just head down there. Doors are opening around six thirty, I think. Um, and the show around seven. Yeah, doors are actually at six p.m. and um, show is at seven p.m. And uh, so uh, they'll pass the hat. You can turn your money into love, as Corin likes to say, and it's absolutely true. And I'm a I'm a big fan of uh, you know set, setting your own price for things i think uh people get stuck by a ticket price and they think a show is only worth ten dollars but it moves them a lot if it if you feel like uh either you only have ten dollars or it's it, uh, that's how much that show means to you then go for it but if it if it moves you and you you're you, you've got There's a little a lot more to give i i appreciate uh, the fact that we're able to give a little bit more at this one there's a lot of green queens and uh you know coupled with the lauriers and uh even some uh, Lion Mackenzie Kings. Nice. You know? Every once in a while, you see Prime Minister Borden, <laughs> you know, um, with a uh, with a mustache that he did not have when he was uh, serving his term <laughs> during the Depression. But um, I, um, yeah, why did I put that there? I'd like to attempt to play you a song that's a, a song that... Um, kind of nervous because um it's a it's a corn raymond song that hasn't been played on stage and it's a it's a newer song uh but not so new that i remember it. it was written a few years back during the pandemic but it's called sorry love for this sorry love of mine and i just i'd like to try it if you don't mind um so like uh just imagine i'm sitting at your kitchen table folks out there and i'm just gonna try and sing you this thing Sorry that I'm hard to love I'm sorry that the moon above Can't shed light on this sorry love of mine Sorry when kiss came to shove I was undeserving of the love you let shine, shine, shine I'm sorry if my apology isn't everything it ought to be I was carelessly unkind And I'm sorry love for this sorry love of mine 
hey, what the heck happened here last night? There's broken chairs and no Coors Light. Nothing's right if I'm not right with you. I'm sorry that it took so long to write my sorry little song. I'm sorrier than it belongs to you. And I'm sorry that the moon was full and that it had you in its pole the night that we lost old John Prime. And I'm sorry, love, for this sorry love of mine. Mm -hmm. And I'm sorry that our eyes adjusted to the fog surrounding us. Tell me, is it love or is it lust that's blind? You had a man who was offering you everything you hoped to win, and I drank your love as though it had been. And I'm sorry I'm the kind of man whose version of the best I can is living just above the panic line. And I'm sorry, love, for this sorry love of mine. I'm sorry, love, for this sorry love of mine. Oh, I like that one. That's that's really great. Thanks, man. Well, that's something that will not be heard at times, and that's something that hasn't been played in Winnipeg ever before. Um, and that is a song that I hope to put on the next record. But, uh, yeah, that's a new one. What's the plan for the next record? I know you got a bit of a plan. Well, actually, um, the guy who uh, is going to be producing it with me is in town right now, and I'm actually hoping to meet him after leaving here. His name Who's is that? Brian Kobayakawa. He's in town? He was in oh, because he was playing the Serena Ryder, right? He was playing the right? Serena Ryder. Oh. Um, so they played on uh, whatever night that was. On Friday. Friday night? Yeah, yeah Friday night. Yeah. Um, I got sick. I felt like I had something coming on, so I missed that show, which was a super drag. Um, but Brian's in town. He's actually leaving town tonight. They're, le they're leaving on their bus um, tonight, and so I'm going to hopefully have uh, supper with him. Brian is ready to, um, you know, we're ready to book some studio time in Toronto and start um, looking at songs and, and figuring stuff out. It's really a financial question at this point. I'm, um, I don't have the money. I'm, I'm in debt from, um, you know, some of the obstacles that I've uh, encountered this year in my own life. It's been a bumpy ride and I'm, uh, man, I, I'm just, I'm waiting for some money to come through as is often the case. Mm -hmm. um, and really it's just a matter of activating the record because once you start, once once it gets activated, once we get in there and get some sounds, then it's um, that's it. I'm I'm gonna do it until it's done. It's gonna happen, but it has not right. yet been activated. So, um, yeah, that's where it's at. We're, st we're, it's, we're it's a bit of a waiting game, and at the same time, we kind of know we want to do it. Mm -hmm. Certainly have the material. Great. So um, hopefully, I'll have some news about that in uh, in the next two months. That will be. Uh, will be fun and exciting news. Well, you know, lots of us are on board. If you decide to do a pre-sale or whatever you decide to do to help get that made, uh, you know, lots of us are here for you. Well, I appreciate Two that. ways that people can help right away. Obviously, if you go down on Wednesday to The Times Changed, you can uh, throw a little love in the uh, in in the bucket and uh, help that way. Uh, I know you're you're also one of the one of the good ones at Patreon. I'm terrible at actually watching the stuff you post there and reading it. But I know that it's there. I appreciate that it's there. Well, I'm that's just, cool. I'm I've actually so been, I've been, I've never... neglected it for a while and I'm back. I'm back. Yeah. I actually just posted something on Tom Waits' birthday. Yeah. I'm working on a piece about Shane McGowan um, oh. and a uh, song right now. And I've got three or four things that I want to uh, 
put up there um, over the next month, and I'm I'm really excited. And it's cool, even though I went through a whole time, and um, you know I neglected my Patreon for a while, and I've still got 92 folks who are still there. I had about twice as many uh, at one point, but uh, man, it almost brings tears to my eyes. Um, those folks. Um, also, I'm going to change it. I'm going to change it. I'm going to do what Scott Cook does. Uh -huh, speaking yeah. of um, pay what you can. And I want to make it pay what you can because yeah. I think there are people that would like to be on there that, that there are people who can't afford it. It's it's funny how often it's the people who can't afford it that are giving you the most or that mm -hmm. are the ones that stick around. Mm -hmm. And it's the ones who can afford it that, you know, maybe they, uh, you know, maybe they have more money than us because they've been careful with their money. But uh, it's you just there's never any logical reason. Um, it is a lot. It is irrational. It is love. And there are people who continue to support me, but I'm very excited to say that I'm back on my Patreon, and it's, um, yeah, it's giving me a reason to get up in the morning. Fantastic. Well, I encourage people to check that out, and hopefully lots of people come out on Wednesday. And uh, I don't know when you'll be back through town again, but uh, hopefully before too long. And, uh, you know, you're always you're always welcome here on the show and at my house, and uh, we, we love having you around. So thank you for uh, Thanks so much, time. Jeff. Appreciate it. Stick around. Uh, we're going to play a couple of commercials and then uh, stick around for a couple minutes. I got some big news here about uh, uh, big changes here at UMFM that, uh, well, not necessarily good, but uh, the way it is. Stick around. Hang on. Uh, friends, uh, normally right now I'd be thrown to uh, a longtime institution here on UMFM called Waxy's Dargle, a show that's been on since the very beginning of this station 25 years ago, hosted by the great Lyle Skinner, who's been uh, a good friend and a mentor and uh, an institution here on UMFM for over 25 years and uh, uh, part of the Winnipeg radio landscape for even longer than that. Uh, Lyle's been facing some health challenges, and uh, we've been running repeat episodes of the program, and uh, Lyle has decided uh, not to do that anymore, and he says that uh, we probably won't hear any more episodes. I, uh, that uh, makes me sad, but it also makes me very grateful to have been here and uh, to have seen Lyle in action and to have been mentored by Lyle for so many years. Uh, I'm very grateful for all that he's done for, uh, for music and for radio here in Winnipeg and uh, just want to thank him for his contributions. Lyle's still out there. I'm sure if you emailed him at waxies at shaw.ca, I'm sure he'd see your email. He doesn't want a big fanfare uh, signing off the show, but uh, I think uh, if anybody deserves it, it's certainly Lyle. So uh, I encourage folks, if, you've, uh, if you're tuning in for Waxies Dargle, Send Lyle an email. Thank him for his, uh, his dedication here for 25 years. Waxies at Shaw.ca. Playing music with a Celtic edge to it here on UMFM with a love and passion like uh, nobody else could. I thank him for his uh, service, and I hope he uh, enjoys retirement and uh, whatever else is to come. Thank you, Lyle Skinner, for being out there. And uh, I'll just remind you, as Lyle would do, that uh, peace and love never go out of style so uh thank you lyle and uh, we'll we'll play his theme music one more time and then uh, play us some music with a celtic edge to it thank you lyle and waxy's dargle <laughs> 